In today's episode, we discuss how to condition your mind to embrace the difficulties and crosses of your life with strength and peace. We learn how these practices help you become more focused in prayer and get more out of each day. And finally, we discuss how to be a better man that others want to be around and you like being. We are joined by Harvard professor, Dr. Kevin Majors. Stay with us. Welcome to another episode of The Catholic Gentleman. We're so glad to have you with us. Uh, I'm Sam Guzman, uh, and my co-host John Heinen is joining us as well. And today we are excited to have Dr. Kevin Majors with us, uh, who has a wealth of experience and knowledge that he's going to share. But before that, um, I'd like to invite you to subscribe um, on your podcast player of choice. Uh, as well as if you're watching this on YouTube, click the subscribe button uh, so that you can get our content on a regular basis. And then lastly, if you've benefited in any way from our podcast, please consider joining our Patreon community. Uh, there's many, many other men already a part of that community. Um, and there's different tiers of the support that um, can uh, just kind of match your situation. Uh, but producing high quality content like this isn't free and we really appreciate your support. So please visit us at patreon.com slash Catholic gentlemen and consider donating. Uh, so today we're joined by, uh, as we said, Dr. Kevin Majors. Uh, thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Kevin. It's great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. So as we said, uh, Dr. Kevin is a uh professor at Harvard Medical School and has been teaching there for the past decade. Uh, he specializes in teaching cognitive behavioral therapy to psychiatrists and training at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And he's trained in medicine and psychiatry. Uh, he got his degrees from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas. And he completed a fellowship in cognitive behavioral therapy at the Beck Institute in Philadelphia. And he also maintains a private practice. So it's hard to think of anyone more qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about today. Um, but uh, it just has to start things off. Um, what really inspired you to get into psychiatry? Um, and what is that practice like for you on, on a daily basis? I think we all have uh, stereotypes about psychiatrists that may be more or less accurate. Um, and, and there's just kind of a popular mystique around psychiatry, mm -hmm. but really, what is it, what does the day-to-day -day look like for you and what inspired you to get into the field? Well, yeah, there's a lot I, I could say there. Uh, first I will say, I'm just in case anyone from Harvard is listening, I'm technically a lecturer. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, just, uh, and I do that part-time and my other work, as you mentioned, is having a private practice in psychiatry and then running optimal work. Uh, so I'm one of the co-founders of OptimalWork.com, and that's essentially how I divide my time. My psychiatric practice is the core of my week, I would say, and so that I do several hours uh, most days of the week. Uh, I see working with patients as a kind of detective work in a sense. I'm asking myself the question always, what's the biggest challenge this person right now is facing? and perhaps avoiding. And then how do I see how to start planting the seeds for flipping their view of that challenge around? That the very thing that they think there is fixed and somehow this is where the progress is stalled, that's where I try to introduce all the growth. So my specialty is in helping people with anxiety disorders. So usually the challenge is some form of anxiety, but the same principles apply really to any challenge that people could face. It could be anger, it could be cravings, could be whatever you would want. It's the same idea that it's the challenge we're avoiding that actually contains the deepest growth that we need mm -hmm. and that will make us the happiest. So how do I, I, my work is helping people then to find new ways of approaching that challenge. So I find my work incredibly like, fulfilling and fruitful and not always easy, but it's at the same time, you know, there's um, something deeply fulfilling when you can connect a person's challenge to what matters most for them in life. 
and suddenly they feel inspired by that connection. And that's probably the, uh, th that would be the highlight then of my clinical work is actually helping people do that. Yeah, yeah. So turning obstacles into opportunities, that's, that's your work in that challenge. Yeah, like, exactly. So. Reframing. Essentially, I try to embody reframing. So, yeah. which is you take the thing that they have framed as some kind of limitation and obstacle and burden and purely bad, and you widen the context. So now they see this is precisely where they need to grow. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I appreciate that very much. And I, I, um, I do. I'm very fascinated by this, right? Because, like you said, you broke it down from you know, kind of this high level to something that we all face, right? It's something that every, especially I feel in the Western world in modern times, this issue of anxiety, this overwhelming issue of desiring to control stuff, but then realizing we can't control it. And as harder, the harder we try, the more we realize the less control we actually have, and then that causes in this spiral of depression. What are some I actually would like to, and we discussed briefly in show prep, um, what are some great stories that you have of people that um, have experienced that, that transformation? You know, generally speaking, what, um, what do we see, you know, an individual struggling with, um, you know, a very traumatic experience or something along those lines? Like, you know, can we enter in just a little bit more um, concretely into to some of the, the, you know, things that you practice? Well, yeah, within the realm of anxiety, the probably the my specialty is helping people flip their view of adrenaline itself, which is actually mm -hmm. what anxiety is. Okay. And so the people who have a phobia of adrenaline uh, end up having, you know, then anxiety disorders. So in fact, all anxiety disorders come from viewing anxiety as a disorder, and particularly from viewing adrenaline, which is a helpful hormone that lets you thrive on challenge and brings out your best performance from viewing adrenaline as something negative. Mm. Okay, that's like, so that's what all anxiety disorders somehow have in common. Now, the kinds of anxiety that I've helped people through varies enormously. Uh, the one of the first cases I had right out of residency was a pilot who, was grounded by the FAA because he fainted while flying a plane. Mm. And the reason he fainted is because his co-pilot told a story uh, about a dental procedure gone awry where a stream of blood shot out of his mouth. And the pilot in envisioning a stream of blood passed out on the spot. So he came to me asking like basically what had happened. And this is a very primal kind of reaction that comes from your threat detector but the threat there isn't even something he's conscious of it's something his body has identified as a threat without his conscious mind even knowing and it's the loss of blood to the brain and then your your body responds that when it thinks you're losing blood like say for instance you're having blood drawn and then you pass out that's why you actually have an unconscious phobia that you, you, you don't consciously possess it, but it's there in the body. And what it does is when it thinks you're losing blood, it forces you to lie down flat. So the, the head, the brain gets perfused with blood on the same level as the heart. So the exposure therapy for him was very bloody <laughs> because we had to actually uh, do bit by bit exposure to getting blood drawn. Uh, wow. So, you know, but, but it, it proves the principles perfectly that you have to take the thing that the person is afraid of or that their threat detector, mm -hmm. even without their consciously having a role in it, has identified as a threat and you gradually expose them to it. You help them to face up to it. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, deep, the deep truth in every kind of psychopathology is that all psychopathology, this is one branch of psych psychiatry, this is the way we think, all, psych all psychopathology comes from having a way of responding to triggers that sensitizes you to those triggers. So you become more triggerable in the future. Mm. So then the therapy is worked, is tries to do its work of these, getting you to learn a way of responding when triggered that desensitizes that trigger. That's like as far as I, it can boil down into the most you know, simple thing. But the, the normal things are people have panic attacks and they feel like they can't go on a plane. They're afraid of flying. 
in my experience, the fear of flying is actually fear of having a panic attack while on a plane and not being mm. able to get off it. That's and so, trigger. but people mm -hmm. there aren't, yeah, it's not really that they're afraid of flying per se. They're afraid of their escape being thwarted. Mm. And that's the essence of panic disorder or agoraphobia when it gets bad. It's super treatable. I, you know, with really good therapy, you can help people in one or two sessions uh, to make the flip. You know, you flipped it where now instead of trying to minimize the triggering, yeah. they actually seek to welcome it maximally mm. with a wide open, bring it on, the more wow. the better. That's the essence. That's like, if there are, if there are two sentences that teach people the path out of any anxiety disorder, it's bring it on, the more the better. Wow. The more they welcome their adrenaline and their anxiety, the more they see that it's, it shrinks. It's only big when you run from it. When you turn to warmly embrace it, reestablish a kind of rapport with your own self and your own body, don't fear your own reaction or thoughts, let it come. You do that and it's incredibly liberating and it can be very quickly liberating. Because the great thing with anxiety disorders is that the more your anxiety is triggered in a moment, the more shapeable you are at that very moment, if you mm -hmm. turn and embrace it. So people who have higher anxiety get better faster. So wow. that's, I love treating anxiety disorders because if you can bring on the, if you, if you can do anything that would bring your anxiety to go higher, that is the royal road to freedom. Mm. Welcome it, lean into it. And it will quickly go away. And the higher it goes, the faster it is. Yeah, oh, that's great. Yeah. So, so that that's that's powerful. I mean, this idea of you know uh, embracing your fear or embracing at least the adrenaline. I think you know the 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 panic attacks coming from not actually giving yourself permission to feel that feeling. Um, there's something in you resisting yes. that feeling, and that's what actually triggers the panic attack, not the adrenaline itself. Exactly. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. So now someone may say, okay, if you're flying, you can avoid that pretty much just by not getting on a plane, right? Um, and there's also a little kind of a spectrum of anxiety disorders where you have something like you're flying, which might be kind of in the middle somewhere, but then you might have something like, let's say PTSD, where somebody is severely traumatized by something that happened to them as a kid, or maybe, you know, even um, uh, prolonged continuous trauma, you know, let's say they had an abusive parent or something like that. So how do you handle more difficult cases where there's like complex trauma or, uh, uh, more severe anxiety that's more deeply rooted. Is, are the principles the same or do you take a different approach? So the, the principles uh, are the same because the uh, threat detector, the amygdala is the same. Yeah. And yeah. your amygdala's job was to detect threats when they are approaching, sound the alarm, which is what you get as adrenaline and what people call anxiety. Really it just helps you to fight or fight if you need to, or actually perform better if you need to. And that watches your response, looking for signs of approach or avoidance. And if it sees you approaching the supposed trigger, the threat, then that teaches it that this actually isn't so much a threat and you have safety learning. And if it sees you avoiding the supposed trigger or threat, then it says, oh, you know, there, he thinks or she thinks that this is actually is the, a real threat and then learns that even more. And that's called thread learning or sensitization. So I try to emphasize the physiology here because it does give us the clearest way forward, you know, to understand what, what is happening with anxiety. The more, okay, so every anxiety disorder is actually can be defined by what is the trigger or what is the supposed threat. Mm -hmm. And for PTSD, it, it's a memory. So that's really like a phobia of your own memory. Mm -hmm. of pain, with panic, panic disorder, it's a phobia of your own alarm system. With generalizing anxiety disorder, it's a phobia of your own catastrophic thoughts. Uh, with obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, it's a phobia of an irrational thought. With scrupulosity, it's a phobia of some thought against morality. Every single anxiety disorder is simply distinguished not by the mechanism of anxiety and how you work with it, but only by the trigger itself. 
and more some triggers that had been more chronic it in the end we just have to be very understanding with how threatening they can feel and we have to really assess is there actually still a threat present so if someone has if there's a complex trauma from an abuser who's still present that's going to be different than someone who had is having you know flashbacks from a car accident that was you know a year ago and and now is afraid of driving because they, they they don't want to remember the car accident yeah so everything does have to be treated you know in in its own case i like to really emphasize the commonality of all anxiety you know mm. that it is still like if you're anxious it's because your threat detector is detecting a threat that may or may not be real if it's not real then approaching the supposed you know the threat is going to produce safety learning and in fact, it is safe, but you have to make a judgment. Yeah. And sometimes people really do need to work with a therapist to help them to make that judgment. So if, if that's, so that's where it's like, yes, you may, in some cases really need someone who's going to help sort out what's the real threat here and what isn't. Yeah. I think that's excellent. I appreciate you sharing that with us. And so for our listeners, uh, Kevin is a devout Catholic as well, and he's able to uniquely connect a lot of these things um, to to kind of, you know, how God built us and how God made us and the things that we can control. And I want to take a moment here and, and switch a little bit to something that I've heard you talk about. And that's the issue of this neuroplasticity or, you know, the brain being malleable, right? Because we as Catholics, we, you know, growing in virtue, you know, uh, good habits that we're trying to form and things of that nature. And we can apply uh, that practice to what we're talking about with these issues of anxiety. And so getting a little bit more practical, I'd like for you to talk about reframing. I'd like for you to, to focus, uh, you know, some time here and talking about how how, you know, one of the first things to control uh, anxiety, because I know a bunch of our listeners are listening now and they're like, oh, yeah, I have I have a lot of anxiety, but it's not, you know, blood transfusion or flying or, you know, a lot of trauma. It's just I struggle to talk to a lot of people in a social environment or, you know, I might uh, struggle to um uh, uh, have a conversation even, uh, with my family in which a hard question is going to be asked about, you know, something within the Catholic faith and I don't have the answers for it. And, you know, and we just start building all these different possible ways for anxiety, but regardless of what your focus on anxiety is, I think I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that neuroplasticity, its relationship to God, and then a little bit about reframing, you know, your approach here in this cognitive behavioral, uh, therapy and how, um, individual men can apply that to, to their everyday life and in, in this, um, you know, growth and holiness. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Great topic. I think when we're helping someone to reframe a challenge that right now they're currently being faced with or facing mm-hmm. and that they might see as a threat, what we want to do is to help them to see it as an opportunity for some kind of learning growth or practice. Mm. asking the question, how can this bring out the best in you? Now, that question adapts itself to each individual and his or her circumstances. So that the question, how can this bring out the best in me right now, is like asking the question, in what way is this the perfect challenge for me right now? Mm. But I found working with tons and tons of people that in fact, the challenge that they're facing right now is perfect for them. And how do you explain that? Mm-hmm. Why is it always yeah. that the challenge right now is exactly what you you most need? Well, partly has to do with on, on our, you know, from our perspective, if something is challenging for us, if there's something that we're likely to complain about and dread, mm-hmm. well, it's because it right now is, challenging. It's because it's not easy. It's because that's actually where we need to grow. If it were easy for us, there wouldn't be growth awaiting us there. So the things that come easily no longer count as challenges because we've already grown into those habits. Mm. So the four, the challenge is actually the edge of the growth that we have in the habits, you know, that we're trying to forge. Uh, so if you're thinking, how can this bring out the best in me? How is this really the perfect challenge? 
what, what that's also then getting at is, is there a providence behind every challenge? You know, and is there a way that I can, you know, is this challenge actually, can it have a new light through the operation of faith in my mind? So what does, how does faith relate to challenges? And I think it relates to them by precisely giving the widest possible context for growth that you could have for giving the, so in any single challenge, faith actually can show you how this makes sense as the will of God for your sanctification. This idea that this is the will of God, your sanctification. That means that whatever is happening to you right now is the best plan for your sanctification. Mm. So we are always facing the choice between two ends. One is self-satisfaction and the other is sanctification. Mm. And everything in us can be, actually serves one of those ends necessarily. These are the two masters. So self-satisfaction is the same thing, I believe, as covetousness, uh, as the sense of having forming an idol, you know, out of our own desires so that, you know, we want them to be fulfilled and we'll sacrifice anything for them versus being willing to sacrifice any satisfaction for the goal of our sanctification. So at every moment, we're actually faced with the question, what sacrifice will we make? Which is like asking what idol or God will we serve? Yeah. You know, what is going to reign in us? And we choose in every moment a life dedicated to self-satisfaction or a life dedicated to sanctification of ourselves and others. So in, in ourself, then it's our own growth and holiness. And then with others, it's our bond with them and our service to them. So all of that is just the work of charity. So in some way, faith lets us see every challenge in the light of charity. You know, as the best way I can respond here is the way that it actually bring out the love of God the most in my life right now. Hmm. And therefore I'm willing to sacrifice self-satisfaction for the sake of sanctification. So in the end, the best use for any challenge, you know, is to embrace it as a means of attaining sanctification. Wow. So that when you feel anything in you, now at least imagine that a person you know is feel, has some addiction, and they feel the pain of the craving. Okay, now that craving will either, when it gets really triggered, you know, that will either accomplish the work of purgation in them if they lovingly embrace it and say, "Bring it on." The pain that exactly is what I need to purge me. That's actually the most secure way then of being on the path of sanctification. Because if you can love the craving, you will not act on it. You only act on it to make it stop, to go away for the purpose then of satisfying yourself. Mm -hmm. So in that case, then you lose the chance of having this deep purgation and then you're more, you're more enslaved to it again. But that willingness is actually in our power. Reframing then lets you see things in the widest context. It brings in you know, what are the lasting ways that we want to grow? That was quite a lot for me to say. I, no, I, it was, that was very powerful. Uh, and it's very contrary to the temptations of the world in the flesh, right? I, I very much appreciate the approach that you're taking there. And I imagine that this is something that doesn't um, happen in one day. <laughs> I imagine that this is the work of a lifetime to, to refocus your thoughts and your attention, you know, and reframing as such so that you can uh, really embrace, you know, and you, it's a different approach that you're bringing up here because I hear, you know, St. Teresa of Avila and these uh, St. Francis of Assisi and these individuals that just embrace their suffering, you know, and, and for our modern minds, that's kind of really so hard to, to do. And, um, you know, but, but when you kind of put that positive, like accepting the challenge, if you will, um, on it. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that can definitely appeal to the hearts of men. So, yes. And it can be in one day, but people shouldn't be surprised if it's not, but 
because I think the idea here is that you have to see that the craving itself or the anxiety itself is the cross, is the cure. You, every time you experience a craving and you love it and you offer it and you, you enter into it as a cross to be stretching yourself on it, you know, and to make a loving offering of it, that loving sacrifice, that is a total victory. Yeah. You know, and every time you have that opportunity, you have to take it. So, and if it seems like it is especially the worst time to have a craving or anxiety, then precisely that is the best time. Because first you make easy progress when, you know, where it's easy, low hanging fruit. But then there are times when you're going to be more on edge, you're going to be more tested in various ways. And then you're going to have what seems like exactly the worst moment to have a craving get triggered or to have anxiety get triggered. Mm -hmm. Then you need to see this is even deeper growth. So the craving itself is the cure for the addiction. The anxiety itself is the cure for the anxiety disorder if it is lovingly embraced. Wow. Now, that doesn't mean in the case of cravings that you go seeking them out. You know, <laughs> I think that gives a mixed signal. Yeah. You know, but should they occur, you know, un, you know, unsought, the discomfort of the craving can be fully welcomed. So the discomfort is actually experienced in the chest itself. And that doesn't matter. I believe it's a craving for, you know, cocaine or for, you know, whatever the, the drug or experience might be. The real craving is actually experienced as a tension in the chest, mm -hmm. just like anxiety. So when it comes to the discomfort of anxiety or cravings, it's that there is a high signal coming from your, your salient systems. And it wants to know that you understand that there is an opportunity here to that you need something you need to flee if it's a threat or something you need to take if it's an if it's a craving if you don't let that system know that you got the message it will increase it and increase it and increase it if you are wide open to feeling it you welcome the discomfort you let it be there in fact what happens is the the whole signal then runs its course much more smoothly so People make things difficult for themselves by dreading the triggering and by distracting themselves when, it, when they actually start to have the anxiety or the craving. So in fact, you have to be prepared to welcome the discomfort as the shaping that it is. With cravings, it's actually very interesting. I think that this is tied into a different system, which is also dopamine. So what's happening when people are having a powerful craving is all that means is that there is a pleasure circuit in their dopamine system that right now needs reinforcement quick or it's going to be degraded mm -hmm. and your dopamine will be assigned to other things. Well, so it can feel urgent. It can feel painful. People can get restless. Great. The more that's happening, the more dopamine reassignment will take place. All you have to do is love the fact that that's happening. So, and love the discomfort that comes as it is, the more you love it and embrace it, it is a quicker path then to reassigning those dopamine circuits. And love will make you deliberate and mindful so that you do not act automatically. Being in threat mode, being caught up in dread, hating the experience is gonna make you more likely to automatically act on it without even thinking. Mm but love makes us deliberate. Love can slow down the experience, slow down time, embrace the discomfort, but actually that discomfort is the growth happening. Eventually then that circuit will have a stepwise degradation down and a whole bunch of the dopamine fibers will be reassigned to other things. Because, and that actually what that means is the rest of life becomes more enjoyable because you know, this addiction had ended up pulling dopamine circuits from where they should be. Like when you have mastery in your job, you should feel great about that. Well, that feeling great with a job well done, feeling great with a relationship that's stable, you know, and happy, all of that is the daily dopamine that we need, that we're built to have. And unfortunately, addictions takes all of that out and then puts it into this one bucket. The craving is the reassignment of the dopamine circuit about to happen. It gets twitchy and irritable. If you just let that happen, love it happening, then you have the stepwise degradation. And the next time is easier. And the next time is easier. And the next time is easier. Awesome.
Yeah. Well, that's that's some really powerful stuff there. A lot to meditate on, um, as you know, and and in, in the way you're describing it, it almost sounds like so so much simpler than we make it sometimes. Um, but uh, it, actually, what you're saying, a lot of it corresponds to a lot of the things that you read in the saints. Like, for example, I just Saint John Vianney. I remember this quote from him. Um, you know, the greatest cross is the fear of crosses. And he talks about how if you can get over that fear of the crosses, then then things are so much easier. Like if you just embrace those crosses, which is almost exactly what you're saying in different terminology, is it's it's the resistance to the resistance that that, that trips us up so often. Um, exactly. And so I guess I'm wondering though, like I've seen a lot in Catholic circles and I don't want to knock it too hard because in one sense I understand it, but like I see a lot of times where people say I'm depressed, I'm severely depressed. I was serious anxiety disorder. Um, you know, maybe my relationship is on the rocks. Maybe I have all this, these past memories that are plaguing me. And what people say is, I'm just, I don't need psychology. I don't need neurology. Uh, I don't need any of that stuff. That's all for the world. I'm just going to pray more. I'm going to go to adoration. I'm going to go to mass. I'm going to go to confession and pray my rosary. And five, 10 years later, they're still in the same cycles, but they're just going to try harder. Just going to give it a little more effort. And, and I don't, like I said, I don't want to, I don't want to disparage this too much because on the one hand, I understand it in the sense that we're told by all the elements of our faith that these things are powerful. Um, they can be spiritual remedies. They can be remedies for us in different areas of our life. But I, we all know, like, and, and we've all seen in ourselves probably times when we've, we've turned to these things and uh, kind of in an effort to avoid dealing with other areas of our life. And so I guess what I'm just would be interested in your perspective on people who kind of embrace this spiritual bypassing of their issues or maybe or maybe who well-meaning but look down on things like cognitive behavioral therapy or psychiatry or any of those other um, methods that are are available for healing. Mm -hmm. I guess my my first reaction is that maybe God is guiding them by other paths, and and that who I'm not going to be the one to say that can't work. Yeah, I believe that if if one you know, it does, in fact, to say in the letter of James, you know, is one among you sad, let them pray. Uh, he also says, you know, that to let them ask for wisdom and that God gives wisdom ungrudgingly. So if people were to truly be asking for wisdom, what wisdom does is clarifies continually the last end, which is how are you able in this very action to prioritize your bond with God and others and your own growth. So, you know, the, so you have the sense of pursuing the highest goods. If people truly pursued the highest goods uh, and were to ask themselves, like, how do I, while keeping this good in mind, really stretch myself in this and embrace that stretch? I think that that is the kernel of all health and healing. If a person could be truly thorough and sincere in applying this, it would go a great, great distance. Now there could be some cases like I don't know, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder where it's still there, you know, you, you might you still might benefit from, you know, from psychiatric care. But I think that for it's true that for a lot of people, if they could learn in every action to ask themselves, how could this actually bring out the best in me? To have a clear image of that in their mind, you know, to have their attention fully in the present moment, and then to specify somehow how they're gonna stretch themselves to the sweet spot of stretching themselves in this next task. And then they do that hour after hour. I think actually that's incredibly transformative. All of cognitive behavioral therapy comes down to three skills. The cognitive part is about reframing, to flip your view, your attitude towards the current situation, to see how it actually is capable of bringing out the best in you. The second part is mindfulness-based approaches, which will let you essentially recollect your attention 
fully in the present moment so that you are not dwelling on the past, I don't think you can sanctify the past by ruminating about it. I don't think you can sanctify the future by worrying about it. You can only sanctify the present by embracing the cross in the present moment. By looking at what I'm about to do, how do I do it in a new and better way that stretches me? And then challenge is the last part, which is the behavioral therapy. It's just you identify the stretch in what you're about to do. I built this into optimal work. This is my 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 kind of universal approach to all psychology issues is optimalwork.com. The idea of that is you can actually develop these skills of reframing mindfulness and challenge in any situation, in any hour of work, or in any hour of life, really. All you need to do is pause before you do it for a few minutes and recollect yourself. But it, it, that can be a very thorough transformation of the entire person. I don't know how people would transform themselves if their resistance to CBT is because they have a fixed view of themselves, you know, and they have a fixed view of the people around them, or they're blaming other people in their life. There is no system in which blaming others actually is going to work and make you feel better. So people, there's all these things where if people were truly sincere and, you know, and had like the right intention, they could go very far, you know? And so, but it's hard because people just, they stop growing because they blame others. They fix their growth in some way. And it's hard to know when you're having your own fixed limited concepts. Yeah. I want to actually continue on that thought process there. I've heard you talk about complaining and uh, negative self-talk and our negative self-beliefs. Um, but I've, I've heard you discuss that we have to remove complaining from our lives. And you've even talked about, you know, who is the primary beneficiary when we start doing that. And I'd really love for you to talk a little bit about the science and a little bit about the ways, um, you know, in this reframing, but also the benefit or then even what complaining does to our, to our mind, you know, fixing us on the negative and, uh, and then this sort of transformation that occurs, um, uh, yeah, if you wouldn't mind, because mm -hmm. I like what you yeah. were just saying there. And I think that that's really important for myself. I know it's had a big, uh, <laughs> I have to constantly remind myself of this, like on a daily basis, um, prone to, you know, negative uh, thoughts or complaining mm -hmm. and realize sure. that I've conditioned myself. So so the, the essence of all anxiety and depressive disorders is a negative processing bias. Okay. And that's something measurable in the brain. And that means that the brain has a proclivity for negatively hued signals. Anything that seems negative, it could be like a sad face. It could be, so if you have a bunch of neutral faces and one sad one, the person actually knows the sad one faster. Mm. There are a lot of, there are experimental ways of measuring the negative processing bias, not of quantifying it per se, but showing, you know, that to the extent the person can have this negative processing bias. When antidepressants work, for anxiety or depressive disorders, they work by seemingly reversing the negative processing bias. So that is exactly what is at play when a person is complaining or reframing because the negative processing bias begins in what's called the ventral medial prefrontal cortex or the appraisal center. When you have the detection of a threat or challenge coming up or nearby or right in front of you, uh, your amygdala will start to light up and it will, it will no, be noticing that there's a challenge here. That does automatically reach up into your ventral medial prefrontal cortex and start to like turn it down. As it turns down, you'll, your way of consciously framing or experiencing that threat will tend to go negative. But you can at that moment realize what's happening. So maybe what that means is you're about to give a presentation in front of a bunch of people and you start right before you, the presentation is about to begin, you start to be like, uh oh, you start to get a little bit nervous. Okay. But you could at that moment say, okay, this is just my system gearing up to give me adrenaline, bring it on. You know, this is, you know, and you would focus on the positive good you're, you're seeking in this presentation, you know, how you want to, uh, well, it could be 
something in terms of like cooperating with the Holy Spirit. It could be speaking more clearly and enunciating clearly as a mm. kind of very concrete thing to practice. Whatever it is, you have a positive goal you're aiming for. And then the adrenaline gets directed towards that goal and helps you to make it happen. What that would look like in an fMRI machine is that your ventral near prefrontal cortex would have started to go down as your amygdala activated, seeing the threat, but then you consciously reactivated it, which is what reframing does. You saw how this could bring out the best in you. And then with that appraisal center fully activated, your amygdala quiets down much more quickly and gives you exactly the right amount of adrenaline for the performance that you have. Mm. So you need adrenaline to perform at your best. It is an, it's a cognitive enhancer that makes your IQ go up. It makes your processing speed better, your, your verbal fluency. Everything is improved by adrenaline. As long as that appraisal center is turned on, which is that you're actually seeing it consciously, deliberately as an opportunity for learning, growth, practice, something like that. So what complaining does is it's a way of voluntarily holding off that appraisal center. By dwelling on the negative and why you don't like this and on what you're really unwilling to experience in this moment and why it's terrible and, oh, and you keep on you know, and what you hate about it, that dwelling on the negative, well, unfortunately, it gets remembered by the brain. And the more you deliberately complain or deliberately let yourself voice the complaining, because complaining could be external or internal, it's worse if it's external because that makes the negativity go viral and affect other people and turn off their appraisal centers too. Yeah. Uh, but if, but at least even internally, you suffer from it. So that is anything you repeatedly do with your brain, it will make more efficient over time. Mm -hmm. And that's, so if you train your brain, like the muscle of focusing on the negative, that actually gets your brain to be really good at locating the negative mm -hmm. and then dwelling on it. You don't want to build up that muscle. The brain is the organ that is most responsive to your behaviors. And so you have to be aware of how you're shaping it. I don't believe that there are people who just have negative processing biases. But yes, everyone who develops a negative processing bias did it unintentionally. So they didn't set out to do it. But one way or another, they either there was some threats that were looming that they couldn't get away from, and then they got just really good at always detecting them. Or there's, there's some experience they were unwilling to have that made them sad. And so they kept on dwelling on that. Either way, reframing is something always in your deliberate power. It's the precise opposite of complaining. Mm. Reframing takes threats and turns them into opportunities, positive challenges to be embraced. Complaining takes opportunities and turns them into threats as a kind of negative challenge to be avoided. So reframing, I think, is the most constant way we exercise faith because you actually are just widening the context of the whole of life and all of eternity and seeing what you're choosing here and the reasons for choosing it brought into every action. So essentially, the meaning of your life is lived action by action throughout your day. But complaining, I see, is a kind of practical atheism that just shuts off all divine meaning it shuts off the search for the divine in the present moment and then encloses us within ourselves. So it creates a little hell within us, you know, and then that, that can go outside of us too. So that, that, now it's not to say that everything is, um, that nothing bad happens on earth. It's not going to say that, you know, that there, no, there are things that are truly bad. And sometimes it helps to discuss those with people if you're aimed at trying to see how this could actually bring out the best in you, what is the path here? Where's the divine wisdom? And you're consulting someone to talk about that. That's not complaining because you haven't shut the door and just declared it negative bad. Right. So I think you do. So I'm not trying to, so sometimes people think that, that, you know, I'm trying to like, well, you can never admit something. No, but if you're getting stuck on seeing, you just can't see anything as good, something as good or you can't really come up with any new strategy for growing in it, well then talk to someone and mm -hmm. share it with them and see if they can help you with strategies. Yeah. yeah uh, I don't think I'll ever complain again after that. I didn't even tell, I didn't even say how it shuts off your immune system. 
you know, yeah. it shuts down the activity of your natural killer T cells. It makes you more likely to get viral infections and potentially cancers. Uh, complaining actually is the sense like it turns off your parasympathetic nervous system, which is what you need to have the full immune response and what you also need to have the full emotional health. So it turns down heart rate variability. So your heart ends up, uh, be, you actually are directly affecting the health of your heart by dwelling on the negative. Yeah. So there is something deeply wise about remaining lighthearted and cheerful, no matter what events happen, you know, and to have the kind of sense of becoming a child and accepting each moment by moment, cheerfully, not carrying the baggage of the whole past with you, you know, but trying to have a sense of like cheerful, grateful acceptance of all that happens that does all the good psychologically and physiologically. Yeah, that's so powerful. So just like even physically or physical states, you know, can be affected by those, those emotions. I, um, I want to go back to something you said, uh, that kind of jumped out at me. And, um, you mentioned that reframing is, is always possible. Um, and I, and I do believe that's true. I always, you know, I believe we have that innate awareness that is able to kind of neutrally observe our emotional states and things like that and choose to accept them or reject them or, um, but I will say that sometimes that feels harder to access than other times. So example would be, let's say someone has a really bad temper and they, um, they, they, they get triggered. Like you said, you mentioned the importance of triggers. They get triggered and they just see red. Like it just, something just takes over. And, you know, maybe in a more, uh, maybe if they're talking to their therapist or something like that, they could say, well, in this moment, I could actually decide to do this instead or something like that or reframe the situation. But in that moment, when they're triggered, it's almost impossible to access that reframing capacity, or at least it feels impossible. Um, and I can think of a lot of different situations like that um, where mm -hmm. someone might have a per persistent struggle with something. And in that moment, it feels impossible to access that kind of neutral awareness that can help them make the right choice or reframe in the mm -hmm. right way. So what's kind of a, a, a way that we can practice this uh, so that in those moments when we, when we experience those things that can be triggering, um, and we maybe feel that powerful emotion coming to the surface. And it feels like a tidal wave that's like very difficult for us to hold back. What are ways that we can access kind of this reframing capacity that you're, you're describing? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the first thing you have to do is pre-frame the triggering to say like that you have to be ready to you're going to welcome the discomfort of the triggering. You try to be ready to exercise curiosity in the very midst of the trigger. So curiosity is an attitude that is a reframe because it implies openness to what is happening right now, openness to what you're feeling. So curiosity is the simplest reframe and it's just on the side of, of from neutral to slightly positive. So if a person were to be highly triggered, say with anger, and he were to ask himself, okay, wait, how angry am I? It's a beautiful question. Make himself rate it on a scale of zero to 10. If he were to rate it, he would not act on it. Because the moment you are becoming, you're turning the anger into something that you are aware of and measuring, you have already bounded it and it is no longer a force impelling you to act. Instead, it is a finite emotion, which is more true actually. You know, so you experience then the anger as something. So now you are no longer subjected to it. It is now the object of your awareness. Well, that's the flip that curiosity does. So it flips you from being this, it's just subjected to some force to now making it the object of your measured awareness. Well, 
that's enough to get people through. And I've actually helped people who came to me very rapidly get over anger problems by helping them to see one, they need to be curious the moment they notice it's coming. If they are noticing, because almost always in these cases, they were dreading it coming. Well, the dread is setting the stage for the blow up. You can't dread you know, the, the trigger you know, and then expect that you will have an easy you know, time managing it when it comes because the dread is treating the triggering as something really inherently evil. No, the triggering is precisely what, what the, what, it's like a deep question. What is an emotion? It's not your destiny. You know, it's not the, a force that determines how you act. The emotion that you experience when triggered is simply your body's, your brain's prediction of what you want to be doing at that moment. So with anger, there's a prediction that your brain is making that you will be wanting to fight. So it gears you up to fight. And that's what anger is. Or that you want that you'll need to flee. You're going to try to flee. So that's what you experience then is anxiety. So anxiety and anger are practically identical in the brain. So they have different expressions in the face and the you know, and things, but in the brain itself, it's the fight or flight response. And it just means that your system is predicting you're going to want to flee or fight. Now, that is not some kind of wisely determined, you know, from all, you know, eternity prediction that is going to be true for you necessarily. So it's very foolish to just give into emotions when they get triggered. They're just predictions. And if you give into them, you confirm them and you make it more likely that it'll predict it again in the future. So by welcoming the triggering, you're doing the opposite. And now your system is open to learning very fast that, okay, our prediction was really wrong. He ended up not wanting to fight at all. In fact, he, instead of fighting, he went and gave her a hug and kissed her. Make your action when you're angry as opposite as you can. Be forgiving, be tender, be meek. If you react that way, in the moment of the triggering, you powerfully reshape expectations in your brain. Your brain doesn't like to make mistakes. So it will be working then very hard to make sure it doesn't make that same mistake again of predicting an action when it's not going to happen. This is, I believe, the most advanced neuroscientific theory of what emotion is, but it is so fully liberating for people. If you turn emotions into destinies, you are trapped in a self-fulfilling prophecy. If having anger means you have to act on it, having craving means you have to act on it, you are building a prison of your own making. It is only a prediction your brain is giving you. It's not a trait. It's not the type of person you are. It's not what you have to be. None of that is true. So I'm also just concerned about people medicalizing every emotion as if oh, I just have this disorder. So I therefore have to give into it. No, the emotion is a prediction. You know, and if you give into that a lot, yes, that prediction gets to be pretty powerful and it generalizes and predicts it in more and more cases and it spreads, but you can always turn it around. So reframing mindfulness, embracing challenges, are precisely how we restore freedom from these forces of self-fulfilling prophecies in our life. Yeah. I have one final question, and that is breaking it down to a little bit more um, practical. One of our listeners, myself, I'm waking up tomorrow and I'm deciding today I'm not going to complain what are some practical things that we can do to actually start that process? Knowing that chances are we're going to fail, especially if it's, you know, this, this negative um, bias is just so strongly built within us. But what are, what are some things that you suggest individuals do to keep that front and center in their, in their mind mm -hmm. and, you know, memory? I think that the best resolution you could make would be to cheerfully welcome the urge to complain whenever it shows up and see how many times in the day can you do that. Mm. We don't want to be anti-anything. Mm. Reframing isn't anti-anything. It's seeing the opportunity in everything. So the urge to complain is the setting for the victory and should be welcomed. And mindfulness isn't anti-anything. This is actually, if you're being mindful of the urge to complain, you are opening up to feel that urge not trying to get make it go away. 
trying to make that urge go away is actually why you complain. You get the urge to complain and then you give into it. So you only give in to things that you want to stop. So the more you have a mindful awareness of the urge itself, well, the better. And so the more times you can practice that in the day, the better. So the, the mistake people make is they think that having an urge to complain means that they're already defeated. No, that's when the reshaping occurs. That's when your appraisal center was shutting off and you deliberately caught it and then worked it back on. So by being cheerfully welcoming, being curious, trying to see, okay, what's the thing here that I could really dive into as an opportunity? So we don't want the sense that internal complaint, complaining thoughts are the enemy. No, that's going to be automatic and natural. You don't want to be anti-thoughts. You don't want to be anti-urges or emotions. Instead, you're going to try to welcome them when they occur. Let them be there. Don't struggle with them in your mind. Just welcome them, let them be there, and then identify what's the most beautiful way of growing right now. And the more times you could go through that in the course of one day, the better a day that would be. So the best day wouldn't mean you were never tempted to complain, and that was a great day. No, you'd actually say it was kind of too bad. I was all ready to embrace it and to like welcome it. That, in that sense, you'll see that you know even everything that seems like the problem actually is part of the solution. If you're trying to be mindful and recollected, and then you get these distracting thoughts entering your mind, what you should do is, well, like you essentially acknowledge them with an inner cheerfulness. You acknowledge them, gently let go of them, and then refocus on whatever you were attending to in the present moment. In the case of like just purely human recollection, it could be the breath or the life in your body or your act of being, you know, and then and it could be also, you know, the presence of God holding you up in being. It could be the presence of our Lord in the tabernacle. So those are the two real touchstones of presence in the center of our soul and in the tabernacle. And we can go back and forth, anchoring, using each as an anchor of our awareness. Well, then when a distraction occurs, great. Acknowledge it, let go of it, and re-anchor. And the more times you practice that, the more you're forging the salience, the power of attracting your attention of the present moment or God upholding it. And that's how you shape yourself. So you can dwell more and more in the present and in, in, or in the presence of God. So I say all these things, like what seems like the bad thing is actually, no, that's the setting for the good thing. So yes, yeah. I think the key insight here, that's, and this is all in a way, the theology of the cross, what seems like the, you know, the, the pain in fact is the gain if it's lovingly embraced as an opportunity. That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so powerful. I, I do want to, ask one final question for myself too because what you're saying is so beautiful but i think uh, in my experience too even when i brought this at times like loving acceptance uh or i've sought to bring that to certain experiences in my life i can i can attest and, and i'm sure some of our listening time too but sometimes there can be a great deal of suffering involved in that where um like that desire to flee that suffering or that desire to accept that suffering starts to like the fleeing impulse starts to get stronger and the willingness to accept it and embrace it lovingly gets seems to get weaker and like especially with prolonged suffering like at first you can maybe start with the right intention i'm going to reframe this i'm going to welcome it i'm going to accept it with a loving and curious attention or whatever, but then like, I don't know, days into it or, or maybe less than or less or longer than that, whatever. Um, it just feels like I can't do this anymore. Like I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to suffer well. Um, how can we develop our capacity for suffering? Because it seems like the key to everything, you know, that you're saying is the ability to suffer well to embrace it, to, to not flee from it, to not resist it, because that just undoes everything. Um, so yeah, that's the question. How can mm-hmm. we, how can we develop that capacity to, to suffer well? I think that the, the, the biggest problem with suffering well is that there can be a lack of deep sincerity about mm. what am I really seeking? 
you know, and are we still in some hidden way seeking self-validation, self-satisfaction in some important aspect? Because with the, if you, if we have the most generous sincerity, you know, in actually seeking the greatest goods, they do come to dominate our life. Uh, another way of asking this question in a sense is for, is there anyone for whom the purgative way lasts forever? And the answer to that is, has always been in church. No. So if you embrace the pain of the purgation, the more you fully embrace that pain and learn to love it, the faster you move through the purgative way. So that for, in some cases, the great masters say a week might be enough, you know, at some point in their life. Yeah, you know, but that's just actually, so it's a question of how fully is the person letting go of the hidden forms of self-seeking that, that are there, that they're somehow thinking I'll embrace this suffering to a point, but then I have like set this limit that no farther, that's mm. unreasonable, or I'll, I'll give up something to a point, but there's some, there's something there that is, I think some kind of attachment you know, that is not being let go of. And that's precisely why they feel unfulfilled. You know, and that, so that's, this is a very deep work of letting go of something. And it's also personal. Um, but that process of letting go, it, once the person's behavior, you know, is more and more shaped by some, some kind of ideal, they do tend to move out of the painful steps of purgation. I think we need people moving out of that stage more rapidly, not more slowly. And they need to be thinking of how do you really get to the next stage, the illuminative, which is where you are now finding in moment after moment, beautiful ideals to stretch yourself with and growing in every virtue. So that instead of just breaking vicious cycles, you know, you actually, and focusing on stopping those vicious cycles, all of your, now your, your life is starting to turn towards starting virtuous cycles, which is what happens when you learn how to pursue ideals. Now, those ideals, then you're looking for ways, you know, how can I be, you know, more, um, you know, growing in a sense of order in my work and intensity in it and constancy in it and looking through all these different things in life where, and you're, you know, eventually it's all going to be in your relationships. How can I be more loving ultimately, you know, with the people in my life and ultimately with, with God. So then eventually all this pursuing of ideals gets simplified and more and more, it's just a question of how can I love God with my whole heart right now and finding ways to do that, finding the cross to be embraced at every stage, there's the stretch of the cross. But then learning how to love, embrace that, not just to grow in a virtue now, but to actually to grow in the bond with God. And that marks the unitive way, which is where everyone is called to be, spending their days in loving communion with God. So I don't think there's anyone who actually needs to be stuck in the first stages of the purgative way. It's the most painful stage. It's the most dangerous stage. The more they get, you know, break decisively with the vicious cycles, get started on the paths of growth eventually i think they will all attain to the unit if they if they persevere in that yeah I this think has been just... a fantastic conversation um i've learned i've learned a lot yeah me too kevin i i, I know that uh i will be re-listening to this uh this episode myself uh you know hopefully taking notes and um and growing in that holiness that that you're speaking of really that's obtainable for all of us and so for those listeners who uh, won't have time to re-listen to this, where can they go to find more of your work and stay, you know, consistently um, on top of what you're doing? Where would you point them? I'll be sure to put them in the show notes. We'd just like to hear a little bit um, from you and the work you're doing and where men can find yeah. you. So my way of teaching all of this is optimalwork.com. So, uh, and there I have a masterclass, which is a four-week training program. So that people can do this training is about 15 to 20 minutes a day, you know, for four weeks. The masterclass is my most complete going through all of this. Uh, the second 
you know, kind of thing is the podcast that I have. So I always feel bad benching a podcast on a podcast. But, yeah, you know, no, please the, do. The podcast called The Golden yeah. Hour. Yeah, yeah. where uh, Sharif Yunus, uh, who has been a great friend and, and co- co-worker of mine for, for years now with Optimal Work, um, he invites me on and uh, it, uh, maybe someday we'll, he'll invite other people on too. But for now, it's been mostly me for the first 100 episodes. Yeah. Or, yeah. or entirely me. Uh, so, uh, and those are like 20 to 30 minutes long and they're all on some different topic. And it's always going to be how it's all about the psychology of challenge. So we don't supernaturalize that directly, but I think always you can take, whenever we say challenge, just think of the cross instead, you know, that's like the Christian approach to challenges. That's the cross. And then, so the cross is the key that when you put that in there, you'll see optimal work is actually the complete program for growing in all the virtues, including faith, hope, and charity. Uh, it's just excellent. Well, I'm so grateful for your time that you would give uh, to us here and that um, we'll be sure to put that in the show notes. All our listeners can find you and, and sure I've listened to the podcast many times. So I encourage our listeners to, to go forward and listen to that podcast as well. So yeah, thank, thank you, you again. All. Thank you all so much for the wonderful questions. It was, it was a great, great conversation here and uh, I wish you all the best in your work too. Yeah. Thank you. And so as we like to end every episode. Be a man, be a saint.